Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we continue with our Progressive Era coverage and review the passing of the 16th and 17th Amendments. Quick shout out to our friends at Sweatsito.com, the greatest velour tracksuits I have ever worn. And just so you know, and just so you know, we are getting paid in tracksuits, but only if you use our promo code HISTORY10, lowercase history and the number 10 when you go to Sweatsito. Gene and I have our eyes on a couple of custom U.S. History repeated tracksuits. You can go to Sweatsito.com and use our promo code HISTORY10, lowercase history and the number 10, or you can donate directly to our tracksuit fund. I think it's better if you get one yourself. Also, check out my books on Amazon.com under Jimmy LaSalle. You can find them there, Immortals, The Naughty List, and if you're a business owner, Unified Marketing Strategy. Which reminds me to thank my friends over at Elite Book Edits for all of your book editing needs. Check out EliteBookEdits.com. And now, here is our resident history expert, Gene Enzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So, continuing on with the progressive era, today we're going to be talking about the first two progressive era amendments. So, there are four amendments that are passed during the progressive era, the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th amendments to the Constitution. And today we're going to be talking about the first two, the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of the 16th Amendment, I think it's important to discuss taxes, you know, what they are, why the government collects them. We have all heard the phrase, two certainties in life are death and taxes. I can't shed much light for you on death but I can talk a bit about taxes. I will never forget the first paycheck I received as a full-time teacher. I was working at a pretty tough school and I was leaving work feeling defeated and exhausted every day. Just like the song, I was working hard for the money. Point to sisters. Yeah. So payday arrives. I get my first real big girl job paycheck. I look at the amount And my take-home pay for two weeks was $1,014 and change. At first, I remember thinking, you know, wow, I'm rich. Prior to that job, I had worked only part-time, making minimum wage throughout college. Taxes, of course, came out, but never to the extent that I had seen now. I looked at my net pay and almost $600 had been taken out in taxes. And my gut response was really one of anger. I remember thinking, what in the bleep did Uncle Sam do to earn this money? Hold my scotch, $600, huh? Well, you know, that (laughs) was all relative. It's all relative. That was my first paycheck in teaching. Before taxes, I my probably my net pay was like 42.5, you know, wasn't a ton of money. Taxes are mandatory monetary contributions that must be paid to the government. There are a variety of taxes. You have sales tax, property taxes, capital gains, all sorts of taxes. For today's discussion, we're going to be focusing on income taxes. The 16th Amendment established a graduated income tax that still exists today. It was not the first tax on income in the United States. During the Civil War, a tax was levied or raised on income more than $600 to help pay for the war effort. The Revenue Acts of 1861 and 1862 were later repealed. 
there is a history in this country of protesting taxes, disliking taxes, even rebellions over taxes. Remember, you know, my my theory of George Washington saying, go get my horse when he hears about this rebellion. Was that the whiskey rebellion? Why, yes, it was. (laughs) Political wars over tariffs the rising burdens of protective tariffs. And, you know, you have stories of tax collectors being tarred and feathered. So there is this history of people disliking taxes. So so now all this tax revenue coming in, just what does the government do with the tax money? And it's different at each level. So you have the federal government, you have state governments. What do they do with the money? So, you know, I'll tell you. So the government provides a wide array of social services. A quick inquiry on a search engine of your choice will instantly provide you with pie charts and explanations of what the federal government spends money on and at what percentage of a certain type of tax funds the yearly budget. This, it's Google it, you know, you, you mm-hmm. will see the, the, the pie charts. Income taxes are the leading contributor to the federal government's tax revenue. Payroll taxes are second, if you were curious. We are now what kind of programs? So we're talking things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, which stands for Children's Health Insurance Plan, ACA, the Affordable Care Act. You have national security and defense. You have safety net programs, things like unemployment insurance, food stamps, low income housing. The list goes on and on. Interestingly, the federal government doesn't make enough on tax revenues to pay its yearly budget. So they borrow. When you borrow money, you have to pay interest. And part of the federal government's budget is paying back debt. Now that we know what a tax is and generally what the federal government does with tax revenue, we need to talk about why the 16th Amendment was passed during the progressive era. After the Civil War era, income tax laws were repealed. There were new attempts at passing new income taxes, but they were found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Now, this is not absolute, but an income tax was supported by most Democrats in Congress. Each time a new bill was introduced for an income tax, the Republican Party tended to squash it, not to say there weren't any Republicans who supported it. The Democrats at the time used this to paint the Republican Party as the party of the wealthy. After all, with a progressive or graduated income tax, the more money you make, the more money you will pay. With the start of the progressive era and the growing support for an income tax, many leading public officials in both parties lent their support to it, including people like Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson. Most members of Congress didn't want to put themselves in a position of having to publicly denounce an income tax. So that gave way to the great idea to have a constitutional amendment create an income tax instead of a law passed by Congress. Nothing like passing the buck, eh? Mm -hmm. Thinking was the states will never go for this and the amendment will never get the necessary number of states to ratify it, which is three fourths. Well, to the surprise of many, more than three fourths of states that were needed approved the amendment. And just to understand, you know, this amendment didn't happen quickly. It took almost four years 
from the time both houses of Congress passed the resolution until the necessary number of states ratified the amendment in 1913. States, all, all but states, uh, the states of Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Florida, and Utah approved the amendment. Perhaps, perhaps these states saw that there was an opportunity for them to have a state income tax, which I know this is not what we're talking about. We'll probably get there one day, but the state income taxes, you know, you were talking about what happens at the federal government, and that is probably less tangible to most people, but the state incomes and, and the local income taxes contribute to your police, your um, school departments systems. of sanitation, school systems, all the public goods that you have locally. Paving roads, mm-hmm. all of that stuff, infrastructure. Yep. So what the 16th Amendment states, and this is a direct quote, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on income from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. The rate began- You want to translate that into layman's terms for those that are listening? Well, they're, they're not going to need a census or accounting of people. So the federal government has the right to pass an income tax, to levy taxes, and to collect it from all people. And we don't have, really have to do anything before we can do that. Right. So, so now we're going to tax done, you. We're going to tax done. you. And that's it. This is not going to change. Mm-hmm. Here we are. The rate began at 1% for incomes of $20,000 and higher. That rate eventually rose to 7% for taxpayers with an income in excess of $500,000. At its passage in 1913, you have to understand that it didn't affect many people. So people really weren't up in arms over this. Over time, rates would change and a greater percentage of the population, of course, files tax returns today than those that had to in 1914. Yeah. Okay. So the net keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I went and I looked up all of the tax brackets just to kind of maybe paint a little bit of color on this for people to understand what it means by a graduated income tax system. So there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different tax brackets. I am currently looking at the one for single filers. So 10% is the lowest tax rate. And it goes up to 9950 You pay 10% of that. The next tier is 12%. And that goes from 9951 to 40525 And it says that the tax owed is $995 plus 12% of the amount over the 9950 So you're only paying 10% on the first 9950 which is that first bracket. Then you pay 12% from on the second, and then it goes to 22, 24, 32, 35, 37. And then if you look at filing jointly, all of these numbers double. So the benefits of being married, right? So 10% on the first 20,000, assuming both parties work, but if only one person works, you're only paying 10% on the first 20,000. And that kind of goes up from there, but it's a graduated rate. So you're only paying the taxes at the higher rate at the incremental level, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so you have to understand that the greater amount of money you make, the more money you're going to be paying in taxes. But if you consider it from the other side, the less money you make, even though you're paying less money in taxes, you're feeling that tax burden much more. It's it's a bigger hit for you, that money. And when we talk about things like the history of loopholes and tax avoidance stories, we could fill a number of 
podcasts on those, right? Nothing. No, we like- don't. We don't call them tax avoidance. We call them tax shelters. I understand that people want to. They say loopholes. They say avoiding taxes, but it's really finding a deduction and sheltering your money. And these are all laws that are, have been passed. They're legal, and people find a way to lower their income so that they fall into a lower tier. Yes. So as I was saying, stories and of tax avoidance <laughs> and you know, nothing like a good charitable organization or donations to charity. So when but when we get into presidency of Woodrow Wilson, we'll talk about things like the creation of the Federal Reserve and the IRS. We're not quite up to that just yet. No, we can go to lunch and I will write off the the bill because we can talk about U.S. history repeated podcasts while we have lunch, Gina. Yes, it's true. It's true. Sheltering some more of your money. Well, that's a legitimate tax deduction. A shelter would be a shelter. An example of a shelter would be things that exist that you can put your money into where it's not taxed. So there are things called opportunity zones, which are areas where people invest into neighborhoods where let's say you make a lot of money. Let's say you make millions and millions of dollars and you don't want to pay taxes on on all of that. You can take a few million dollars and you can put it into one of these opportunity zones. That would be considered a tax shelter because then you're deferring the tax payment until later on while that money gets to work for you as the real estate improves in value and everything else. That's a better example of a tax shelter as opposed to a tax deduction. Mm. Paying paying for lunch is a tax deduction. Investing in in these types of vehicles where you don't have to pay taxes on the gains, that's an example of a tax shelter. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. The next amendment, the 17th amendment. Now this, a lot of people don't think that this is a big deal. The biggest takeaway I would want people to get from the 17th Amendment is that it gave the average voter a greater sense of democracy. It changed the way U.S. senators were chosen. And the amendment states, and this is a direct quote, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications for electors of most of the numerous branches of state legislatures. When vacancies happen in the representation of any state in the Senate, the executive authority of such state, which is the governor, shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies. Was that an appointment? Yeah, provided that the legislature of any state may empower the executive thereof to make temporary appointments until the people fill the vacancies by election as the legislature may direct. So the appointment is only good until the next election cycle? Correct. And I'm going to give you an example. The power to choose a U.S. senator was taken away from individual state legislatures and was given to the people. So now the Senate, just like the House of Representatives, would be directly elected by the people. The Senate was known as the Millionaires Club. It was thought that the wealthy could buy their way into a Senate seat. 
After all, many individuals who wanted a Senate seat would often campaign for members of the state legislature or donate money to campaigns. There were issues with Senate vacancies lasting for months because political parties within the state controlled different houses in the legislature. And during the progressive era, there was a call to end political corruption and make U.S. senators elected by popular vote. In February, we we still have political corruption and hashtag it's still a millionaire's club (laughs) in February of 1906. Cosmopolitan magazine published a nine part series that was titled the treason of the Senate. The first line of the first article really shows you the distrust that some people had of the Senate. And this is a quote from that article. Treason is a strong word, but not too strong to characterize the situation in which the Senate is the eager, resourceful, an indefatigable agent of interests as hostile to the American people as any invading army could be, end quote. These articles were written by a popular novelist at the time, a man by the name of David Graham Phillips, at the behest of William Randolph Hearst, the famous publisher and owner of Cosmopolitan Magazine and member of the House of Representatives. The articles followed the conviction of two U.S. senators on corruption charges. Prior to the amendment getting passed, many states had started to change the way they appointed senators. Some states used what was known as the Oregon system. By 1908, the state of Oregon began holding primaries, where the names of potential candidates for a Senate seat was voted on by the people. The state legislature would then select the winner of the primary vote. And this became known as the Oregon system. And many other states started to kind of follow suit. A second major change is that when a Senate seat becomes vacant due to death, resignation, the individual gets elected or appointed to another type of public office, the governor of a state has the power to fill the vacancy until the end of the current term of that particular seat. So this is the example I said I was going to talk about. When current Vice President Kamala Harris was a senator from California when she and Joe Biden won the presidential election, the California governor, a man by the name of Gary Newsom, had the power to appoint a replacement. Now, can a governor appoint him or herself? That answer is yes. But when that has happened, either by doing it themselves or resigning and having their lieutenant governor appoint them, it hasn't worked out for them and they lost re-election. Senator Alex Padilla, who was California's Secretary of State, now holds Harris's Senate seat and he will be up for election in his own right in, uh, I think, 2022. So this year. Yeah, I think so. The impact of the 17th Amendment is important. It structurally changed the federal government. The Senate was now going to be directly elected by the people. As for the charge that direct elections of U.S. senators would stop the Senate from being a millionaire's club, 
That's debatable. Always follow the money. Do you know how many members of the Senate or the United States House of Representatives are millionaires? The answer would surprise you. More than half of all members of Congress, and when we use that term Congress, what we mean by that is that that's the Senate and the House of Representatives together. So more than half of the members of Congress are millionaires. And we're not just not just one or two million either. There are some members who have hundreds of millions of dollars. Many members of Congress have seen their personal wealth grow since being elected. After all, few things will help grow your portfolio faster than good connections and access to power. I find it interesting that people who make $174,000 a year have as much net worth as these folks to look at Pelosi. But I think, you know, in her case, there's some some influence, like you said, where these folks are getting tips on things to invest in or they know what vote is coming to the floor. I think a lot of that is wrong. They're, they're talking about or now seats on them- companies and consulting yeah. fees or speaking fees or book deals. I mean, all of those things. Follow the money. Do your research. Be informed. If you haven't listened to our podcast on campaign financing, please do so. It takes a lot of money to run a campaign and get elected to public office. Money talks. And in government, it talks real loud. Good podcast. So I would add I would add to the the two things, death and taxes. I would add a third thing, death taxes and the New York Jets. Not winning. It's my personal cross to bear for those that don't know. I'm a big Jet fan. You know, I I just just be smart and be wise. And and, you know, every once in a while, you will hear calls of people saying like, oh, we need term limits in Congress. There's a reason why we need term limits in Congress. I said this the last time I said you need lobby reform first. Yeah. You have people who have made a career out of being a politician and where has that gotten us? So take a good hard look at how long people have had certain seats. Why and do people keep intent, getting reelected? The, the intent was not to be a politician forever. The intent was never to do this. The intent was to go and serve the people and then go home and go where the power is, where you were a voter. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to really take a hard look at that and, and do term limits, well, campaign financing term, reform, the- lobbying reform. The people can do term limits this November if they want. It's an election cycle. All they have to do is vote out the incumbent. Yeah. Midterm elections are a huge deal. Vote out the incumbent. That's it. You're at the halfway point of the current president's term. They call it the midterm elections. And depending upon which political party has control over the Senate and the House of Representatives, it is a big deal. So get out there and vote. Know who the incumbent is. Know what they have done for their constituents, what they have not done. And if they're not doing what the people need, vote them out. All right. What's the next? What are we doing next? The progressive era. I assume it's going Our to be 18 and, 19, podcast, 18 and 19th. Well, we're just doing the 18th amendment and temperance movement prohibition. We're going to be joined by somebody museum. from the, the prohibition museum. So it should be um, a good, good podcast. That's the guy I met when I went there. Yes. You met him. The guy. I spoke yes. with. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to it. Yep. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.